been a while since we've done an InsureTech episode, and got I got a lot to discuss, got a lot to share, been up to a lot of things, um, and I figured a great way to start things off. I got I got a little fifteen minute long talk that I gave recently at an academic conference, and sketching out some of my thinking and some of my ideas, some arguments around the political epistemology of machine learning and actuarial science, and so. I'm just, I'm just going to give that talk right now, and then we can kick things off. It's Machines I View, the Politics and Production of Ground Truth for Insurance. Insurance has always been a powerful industry built on making data and putting it to work. Insurers have long been adept at aggregating information about populations, predicting the probability of events, deriving profit from risk and its management. They use the statistical tools at their disposal to sort people in the risk pools, set prices and conditions for coverage, and surveil the behavior of individuals and groups. While used to great effect, those tools also tended to be blunt. That is now changing. Emerging technologies promise to equip insurers with sharper tools. Thanks to things like smart devices and machine learning, Insurers are gaining access to new capacities for assessing individuals, governing risk, preventing loss, and capturing value. It's one thing for an insurance company to say something like, quote, We anticipate that people with your broad demographic profile are more likely, over the course of a lifetime of coverage, to be more costly risk. But if you meet certain conditions, we will lower your premiums. That was the old way of assessing risk and setting prices in the insurance market. But now it's quite another thing for an insure tech firm to say something like, quote, We anticipate that you, based on behavioral data collected from these specific smart devices, combined with additional data purchased from third-party brokers, are likely to have a risk event in the next three weeks. We have adjusted your premium accordingly. This is the shift underway as systems like machine learning integrate with insurance, advancing long-held logics and aspirations while activating new capabilities for risk governance. Insurance also has the rare distinction of being in almost everybody's life and on almost nobody's mind. The industry is among the most pervasive and powerful institutions in society. At the same time, insurance is also largely invisible and ignored. Folks working in the industry will readily, even too eagerly, admit that the details of insurance policies and actuarial practices are dreadfully boring. Of course, science and technology studies scholars, or STS, know that the boring is political. When people in power use arcane text and esoteric expertise to ward away meddling publics, when they hide behind Byzantine systems and stonewall tactics, then that is usually a sign to dig deeper, not shy away. And yet, with insurance, the shield of boringness and the sword of bafflement seem to have largely worked. Compared to cognate sectors like finance and real estate, Insurance receives far less attention, especially scrutiny of the critical and social variety. The difference, I would venture, is even more dramatic when we look at the divide between analysis of fintech versus insure tech. However, 
Many of the major themes, dynamics, and issues that attract people to studying subjects like technology and society or the politics of data are exemplified by the insurtech sector, often in exaggerated ways by a massive industry that has direct material effects on our lives and communities, an industry that underpins and oversees everything that we do. For the rest of this talk, I look at some ways in which machine learning is being integrated into different stages of the insurance value chain, such as price optimization, claims automation, and fraud detection. My aim is to build toward a critical analysis of the political epistemic system that is being enacted by insurers and technologists. This talk is a quick sketch of a larger work in progress. That work in my overall project also draws from a variety of sources and methods, in addition to the extensive interdisciplinary review of literature on insurance and insuretech from you know, scholarly sources like sociology, law, and history, as well as professional sources like actuarial science and risk management. I've also carried out in-depth analyses of in industry materials, keeping both a broad view and diving deeper into specific companies, products, and markets for case studies. I've also carried out ethnographic work at major global industry conferences, including InsureTech Connect Vegas, where I was just last week, and the International Congress of Actuaries, as well as at smaller networking events and educational seminars for people within the InsureTech industry. Through my direct engagement with the industry, I've conducted dozens of interviews and informal conversations with people working across the very long value chain and at every stage of seniority, from junior actuaries and software engineers to startup founders and corporate CEOs. Now, both machine learning and actuarial science have a core epistemic feature in common. They don't generate knowledge based on causal relations, but rather correlation and conjecture. The evidence they deploy to justify their decisions is largely circumstantial rather than conclusive. Both are built on an epistemology less concerned with knowing why a relationship might exist and more with showing a probabilistic connection that can be turned into action. If you ever want to frustrate an actuary, start by asking them to explain the causal validity of factors used to assess, predict, score, and price risk. Insurance is not wholly or even primarily grounded in clear causality based on objective facts. Brian Glynn, an ex-actuary turned critical legal scholar, has convincingly argued that, quote, insurance is a thoroughly postmodern industry. By postmodern, I mean that at its foundations are narratives about risk, fate, and responsibility that allow insurers to function as though their practices were predicated on objective, knowable truths, end quote. Here, Glenn points out that insurance, an industry built on the strength of its truth claims about the world, is actually based on interpretations and stories about truth. I would go even further by saying that insurance also depends upon the production of the truths that it then interprets and tells stories about. And for machine learning, that means the production of ground truth, or the data sets used to train models of the world, which then reproduce and reinforce the position, perspective, and power of insurance companies. 
Their political values are hidden within technical decisions, starting from how ground truth is constructed, what data sets are included, what questions are unasked, what parameters are optimized, what interpretations are used, and the technopolitics only intensify from there. Both machine learning and actuarial science also share another key operational feature. More direct forms of knowledge, such as your answers on an insurance questionnaire, might be treated as less truthful than proxy inferences about you derived from other sources. As an executive at Swiss Re, we recently explained in an interview, quote, we've got a number of predictive models going. One specific example would be, we've got something called a smoker propensity model. It can predict whether you smoke or do not smoke without actually asking you the question or testing you for it, end quote. You see, people lie all the time. And since insurers largely assume people are defrauding them in some way, if not actually, then potentially, they would rather trust indirect data about consumers than direct information from consumers. Here, the idea is that indirect data and inferential analysis is untainted by the people they represent and validated by the machines that produce and process the data. Other examples include insurers claiming to use computer vision to assess videos of people explaining their insurance claims to detect hidden quote-unquote nonverbal cues for fraud in their automated claim systems. Or they can use the GPS and accelerometer and smartphones to track your driving and identify quote-unquote near-miss events or events where an accident almost occurred and then charge you a penalty for each event. This offers an innovative method for optimizing profit and personalizing risk based on outcomes that might have happened but crucially did not happen. These forms of data can all be used as proxies for social categories like class and race or to make moral judgments about your personal responsibility, which then factor into algorithmic decisions for prices and policies. There is now a whole cottage industry of companies that claim that their technologies can discover, uh, discover truth by processing everything about consumers except what they say. These include startups like Formative, which calls its machine learning model a quote-unquote digital polygraph that analyzes quote thousands of behavioral cues or someone's digital body language collected while they engage with a form or application, end quote. This data includes how long it takes to complete an online form, information typed into fields, then deleted, and the movement of your cursor on the page. This explicit reference to the pseudoscience of lie detection does not deter the major financial institutions that use services like Formative and treat them as accurate. Here, truth is judged not on scientific soundness, but on its statistical significance for profit-making. The push toward hyper-personalization and profit-optimization also means that these decisions are not just based on how risky a person is, whether in some objective sense or in comparison to other similar people, but also based on metrics like customer lifetime value or the predicted net profit that any customer will deliver over their lifetime. 
More generally, as Dan McQuillan writes, quote, for data science, the primary qualities are those that can be expressed as data. Rather than drawing on the first-person view of reality, it follows the scientific pattern of standing outside, registering events from an external perspective. Events in data science are constituted from experiences, uh, not from experiences, but from those traces of experience which can be datafied, end quote. In this political epistemic system, direct apprehension of information is devalued because it centers an inferior subjective viewpoint rather than a superior objective God's eye view. This is the eye that sees everything from nowhere. Nothing escapes its penetrating gaze. As Donna Haraway writes, quote, this God's eye fucks the world. Or in lieu of God's eye, the machine's eye will do. Recently, the president of Sampo Holdings, Japan's second largest insurer, made this statement, quote, we can now reveal things that in the past only God knew about, thanks to technology, including AI, end quote. This bombastic claim was made after Sampo invested $500 million, that is half a billion dollars, into Palantir which specializes in the kind of social network analysis that can further magnify capabilities for social surveillance, risk prediction, and profit maximization for insurers. Of course, we should not take such statements literally. They are marketing copy for investors. At the same time, they show the extent to which metaphors of machinic power being next to godliness are taken seriously by industry leaders. They also reveal the ambitions and logics that drive the industry forward, not just right now, but for the last hundred years, propelling it toward goals that can never be really reached, like total integration of all data, perfect identification of ground truth, hyper-personalization of risk, dynamic automation of pricing and claims. But even if those goals are unreachable, the consequences of that future can be seen today as insurers actively advance their ambitions, pushing them further and further. It's like an asymptote. You can never quite reach the endpoint, but you can get infinitely close to it. That is their goals, their ambitions right now. I often hear people in the industry express these goals and logics in explicit and extreme ways. They motivate innovation agendas and investment strategies for a global industry that once again underpins and oversees everything we do. Both machine learning and actuarial science are established by their champions and creators as universal regimes of social governance. Much of their power and authority derives from the ability to not just make truth claims about the world, but to claim truth as their domain, as a natural and valuable asset that they have uniquely privileged access to and are uniquely positioned to make use of. Machine learning and actuarial science are much more deeply entangled in terms of their political economies and political epistemologies than critical data scholars tend to realize or acknowledge. But by studying them together, Our material analysis of their operations and impacts of their production and application of ground truth will itself be made all the more grounded. I hope my work offers some steps in that direction. Thank you. Thank Thank you.
Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 297 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy. As always, um, let's let's just let's just get right into it. I, I, I had to cut Ed off. He was about to hop in, say, you know, have some discussion, responses to to my talk. I said, no, Ed, we gotta introduce the show. We've been going <laughs> right. for 16 minutes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Someone stop him. Someone stop him. Someone stop him. Rush the stage. Rush the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up here like George Bush. I'm dodging shoes. People throwing <laughs> shoes at me. <laughs> this insurance insurance industry. Insurance. Have you have you ever had a talk with an insurance, maybe an actuarial or an executive who's just like, I don't like what you're saying, Jathan. Fr- <laughs> frankly, I think I think that you are a bit too cynical about our industry, uh, and we actually provide a necessary service to everybody. Um, I have been called cynical by people working in the insurance industry. This is true. Um, it's it's funny. Like, I mean, I'm generally very good about like I, I'm not confrontational. I'm not, or rather, I'm not combative when I talk to people who work in the industry because it's not productive to be just like outwardly combative. It shuts them down. And I'm like, no, I want you to talk to me and and get, and get to build a relationship with me. But what I will do is if I build up, when I build up relationships with people and I talk to them, I get to know them, um, I'll, I'll float some stuff by them and just kind of do some like some some road testing, some gut checks of like my analysis to be like, can I frame this in a way to make you agree with it or like see where I'm coming from? That does work. Um, I've, I've, I do, there is like a couple people who I've gotten to know really well. And so like, I, I let a little bit more of my true self fly <laughs> with them and like will actually say what I what I think or or pose like more outwardly critical kind of pers- positions on the industry. And there are times when people will be like, well, that's a pretty like that's that feels like a pretty cynical view. And then I'll come at them and be like, yes, but is it wrong? <laughs> you know, like is is it is it wrong based on what we know? Um, is happening in the industry what's driving it and you know they 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 largely say no right like it's not wrong it's just cynical you know and so um so so yes i have been called cynical by people but it has never been in a like like you don't know what you're talking about but more in a um well you you know that that's 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 certain. That's certainly one way to look at things, but we could look at it, you know. But we could look at these other things over here. So it's more of like it's cynical to pay so much attention to those things um, that are happening in the industry versus looking at these other things um, or looking at the like like the aspirations, uh, you know, the, you know, the PR, right? Well, you know, insurance is really important and it serves a vital need in people's lives and society. I'm like, yeah. And that's why it's doubly, uh, awful that they're not fulfilling that vital need, you know? So, so yeah, like I have gotten into it. I think, I think for most people working in the industry, like, they can't deny my my like critic my critiques and my analysis because I'm not making it up. But what they what they will do is be like, it's truly awful that things like price optimization and claims optimization happen in the industry. Um, and you know those those are those are just bad practices in an otherwise good industry. 
right? Like that's that's kind of like the the framing that people will have um, around it to be like we we yes we need to root out these like you know unethical or questionable practices that are undermining the the real you know, social mission of, of, of our industry rather than being like, no, those things are like, they're not bad apples. They're not just like bad practices. Like for the most part, those things are considered best practices um, within the industry, you know? So, so yeah, I think a, a lot of it is like what perspective you have to take, like, especially if you're working in the industry, like it's paying your bills and giving you a salary to be like paid by an insurance company or an actuarial consulting firm or a market a- analysis or, uh, you know, market analyst or something like that. Like, it's like, what do you have to do? How do you have to contort yourself to um, work in this industry while also uh, not just completely lying to yourself that, yes, bad, <laughs> there are bad things happening in the industry? That's interesting, you know, because I, I, uh, I always think about how, you know, when I dealt with people in the ride hill industry, it's, I think in some ways it's similar, in some ways it's divergent. In some ways it's similar, I think, also where it's like, you know... Oh, you're describing practices that are dominant at this firm in a specific phase of history, and they're not actually reflective of core dynamics that drive ride hail or your food delivery, right? That, you know, if regulators weren't asleep at the wheel, we would have a better ride hail regulatory system or food delivery system because these are just, um, you know, app-based versions of already existing startups and ventures. And so you can see what logic they're already driven by and it would it would be be more rational and you wouldn't be screaming about it if they weren't on an app. Um, but also on the other hand, there are some people who are like, um, like, shh, like, hey, what the fuck are you, you know, like, <laughs> like trying, you know, basically <laughs> responding to criticisms, not so much by offering a rebuttal, but by just trying to talk over over the criticisms and by uh, trying to reframe the focus, right? Yeah, maybe there it's a shame all these other logics have been emerging, but they're uh, they're temporary. They're uh, I don't even know what's the word I'm looking for. They they um, they manifest from a system that's still in flux and hasn't fully stabilized yet, and so we don't know exactly what and and it kind of converges on the other argument we don't know exactly what the system will look like but it's silly to think that this early phase where it's a wild wild west and where there's you know relaxed rules and regulations in place it's it's silly to imagine that this kind of unfettered capitalist stage is going to be the final hallmark but also but that's also one of the reasons why i really love your work on insurance because insurance is an is a is an industry that in one way or another has existed for such a long time. Um, and a lot of the logics that are appearing pretty fucking ugly now are in part accelerated by digital capitalism, are in part accelerated by some of the you know free market fundamentalism and the financialization of everything. But a lot of them are also just like have been there from mm-hmm. the beginning and they are finding advocates and zealots and technologies that are allowing them to kind of manifest in a way that feels, you know, um, or my sense of it is that it feels like, you know, some of these core logics, these core truths, these core animating functions unleash and lead us to the point 
right? As you talk about in a lot of your work where like, yeah, there's an idea of insurance that might make sense. Um, what we have is uh, far from it and moves farther and further and further from it constantly. That's exactly right. And it's like, it's the core irony of pe- of people working in these industries, whether it's insurance or ride hailing or whatever, like calling us the cynical ones. I mean, it's like, man, I'm not the one like making these fucking, uh, you know, draconian decisions to, um, you know, prioritize, you know, a dollar of profit over somebody's life, you know, like that's pretty damn cynical. Um, I, you know, I, what I'm cynical for like pointing it out for, for emphasizing it, for investigating it, you know, and it feels like the real cynical people here are, who are, uh, the ones taking something that is a really important or even vital social service, um, or social system like, you know, transportation, like, you know, risk management or risk pooling. Um, you know, it, it seems like the real cynical people are the ones who are using that social service as justification to uh, fucking ring profits, um, to create systems that are extremely exclusionary and discriminatory, uh, that are all like motivated by um, these, you know, ghastly imperatives for capital accumulation uh, and do so knowingly right like like the more we learn about the internal operations of these companies right like you know it, it ain't just an accident right like you got people like intentionally and explicitly making decisions that are like well it would be more profitable to not service these particular people or to automatically reject um, these, you know, this category of claims um, or to, uh, you know, charge uh, these, you know, this group more, more for the service. Like, you know, (laughs) like that's pretty fucking cynical. Um, I, I, I I don't think, I don't think uh, investigating and critiquing it is all that cynical, but so it is really funny that it's a favorite, uh, it's a favorite like counter criticism of people working in these industries of whether they're like, you know, the, the PR flax or the, the executives um, or the 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 mar- you know the management consultants like whoever's running interference for these practices it's real it's real ironical um, that one of their favorite thi- like things to sling at us is the accusation of cynicism uh, when I'm like man you you hold, you you looking in a mirror right now that's all you're doing essentially right uh, every accusation is in a confession. True of Zionist, true of capitalists as well. That's right. That's right. So that was my little talk that I mm-hmm. gave at, <laughs> at this, this conference. Like it. it was the it same really, conference was, where Gary V was speaking. <laughs> no, no, that was <laughs> the indus- That was the industry conference. I gave this talk at an academic conference a week after um, okay. the, the one in Vegas. I um, love this- that you got to see Gary V speak because this is a man who like. It's like, yeah, man, I grew up. Yeah, maybe I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth. You know what you should do? Sell everything. Live like a nomad because that'll get you hungry. <laughs> that'll get you hungry for my crypto baby uh, token. V friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's still, my, he's still my, like, he's still slinging that. He's still, he will uh, never marketing stop. it. 
until they put him in jail that he will never stop. Yeah, in fact, that reminds me. I saw a really great paper um, uh, by Marion Forcott, who's one of my uh, real like uh, scholarly idols um, at this academic conference. It was a really great paper on the uh, the life and death of NFTs, but she was using NFTs as a case study for understanding the dynamics of speculative bubbles um, for for assets. So it, it was a really great kind of. Uh, post-mortem on nfts as like as which argued exactly what we said a lot about like you know web 3 and stuff like that like this is not some like anomaly but rather it's like a hyper exaggerated um version of like a capitalist dynamics which makes it a really great case study for understanding these fundamental underlying capitalist dynamics of like you know fictitious capital speculation um, all of that because it is so fucking just exaggerated and like a caricature and and uh, yeah it was a really great paper on NFTs as like a way to understand the dynamics of speculative bubbles. You know, I was talking to someone about the uh, tech asset bubble, and part of me feels a little sad that I mean, on the one hand, I think it's good that there was a deflationary period that maybe wasn't like core to the structures being ex- exhausted but to but due to a lot of scandals and the ongoing inflation that was induced um you know by profiteers um uh, you know this and and the supply side um and so there's this inflation and the and uh, as well as some sagging in the in the structure and the fraud that led to a deflationary moment. And that prevented a lot of people from getting into these frauds and scams. They might've otherwise done so, but it prevented us, you know, and I don't want to sound like an accelerationist here, but I do think there is some value when you have an asset bubble, especially one that's being propagated by like a really frothy sector that sits at the intersection of a reactionary political project, a kind of ascendant cap sector of this capitalist class, you know, the tech capitalists and the VCs, um, that we would have seen even more esoteric financialization, infection of the broader economy, and a collapse that would probably have hurt more people, but I think would have led to a more permanent foreclosure because now you know you're starting to see this even though you have people like like her writing that really great you know postmortem on nfts these people are already circling the corpse uh with bandwagons trying to figure out how to spin the narrative and they're already trying to spin the recent deflationary period or the recent bursting of or semi-bursting you know controlled demolition of the bubble as a one of the cycles, one of the many, many, many cycles, right? And you know, there's some argument to be made that a lot that you know the cyclical nature of um, crypto and Web three and a lot of these digital assets is not actually a structural and a systemic thing, but an, art- an artifice whereby individuals realizing that the game is up reinvest to reinflate to re-enrich themselves. And then come up against hard barriers that then result in a retreat, 
reinvestment, to reinflate, to re-enrich, and so on and so forth, right? But that I think that that logic might have really run out of steam if some of these more esoteric scams were allowed to build up. But then again, I don't know, right? Like, because because a lot of this stuff is not, you know, and we talk about this a bit, right? There aren't like really ironclad laws to technology as if it is a force of nature. But at the same time, because a lot of these things are not purely technology, they are like speculative financial instruments grafted with technology onto political structures and social and economic structures, there are some trends and dynamics related to the larger political economy that we can intuit. So it's like, how much of it do we let happen and how much of it do we trust um, will go one way or another, right? Like would FTX, for example, have blown up later if not for the fraud that was caught then because of a really small, like weird set of events reporting uncovered by CoinDesk um, or, or reporting from CoinDesk uncovering a weird FTF. FTT holding a dynamic between Jane Street and um, FTX, right? Maybe. But also, like, if that hadn't been uncovered, would it have still collapsed if grown to become the largest um, asset, you know, exchange for crypto? And would it have permanently or successfully lobbied for changes in the law to allow for trading of crypto assets? And would that have foreclosed the possibility of a real asset bubble deflation? Maybe, maybe not. So I don't know. But you know, like it's hard because I think all that to say with NFTs, NFTs truly are, it feels like if you're looking back on them, it should be clear they're dead. They're dead end. They're a scam. And yet I worry and I'm already starting to see people start to circle the drain and try to climb back out of the drain and insist that actually the recent period killed a lot of the scams and the fraud and the junk. And now we're going to start seeing the real stuff. Now it's time to build. You know, how many fucking times <laughs> have we seen that argument, right? Um, and, and this is something I feel like is a threat. That's popping up also in the gig economy. It's popping up in autonomous vehicles. It's popping up in artificial intelligence. So I'm curious, like, you know, do you see, you know, if you step back and look at insurance as an industry and its political economy and its structure, you know, are there periods that map on to this kind of boom bust cycle? I mean, are there products? Are there schemes? That are offered to the public, to clients, to businesses, to financial entities as the new way forward to protect yourself from risk that go bust. And then there's a sort of recalibration to defend that product as part of a larger push towards edging up prices, towards um, rationalizing more financialization as part of shifting mindsets into risk management and fun and constantly hedging risk all the time? Um, or is there like a, some, some other sort of dynamic that goes on there? I mean, that, that is a, a truly excellent question. And um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Before I get to that, though, I want to pick up on your point about like, you know, like, because, you know, after, you know, after Marion's talk, someone asked her very, you know, the a similar kind of question around like the, you know, death of NFTs, like, you know, like, is NF, have NFTs gone away? 
um, or are they going to go away? And she was kind of like, I mean, they haven't, right? Like people are like, as you said, like people are still very much trying to like make them a thing and like keep them going and being like, no, this is, this is all part of the boom bust cycle. It's the dip. It's the you know, peaks and valleys. Um, I mean, I, I just can't help but think about the, the recent party in Hong Kong, the Bored Apes Yacht Club party where like a bunch of people got, uh, like sunburns on their cornea. Um, did you see this? No, I didn't see this. Oh, you yes, missed no, this? I did, I did, I did, I did, okay. I did because 404 reported on it. These motherfuckers yes. use germ lights that sterilize, literally used sterilizing UV lights and yeah. now are unable to see. Is like, it and as, this, this, is the blindness yeah, yeah, permanent? That's it. Well, so it's not, it's not permanent if you get treatment. Uh, in like in like appropriate treatment and therapy in time, um, but like yeah, they used they use like these ultra powerful sterilizing UV lights like in their rave as just That's part stupid. of the like the lights you know the strobe lights in the rave and a bunch of people like dozens of people from what I saw got like what are I forget the, I don't know the me- I don't remember the medical term for it but it is effectively like like uh sunburns on your cornea also me personally i don't want lights at the rave put me in a dark fucking room and (laughs) put smoke in there and flash some seizure inducing lights why are we why are we play why are we illuminating the rave what's the point (laughs) it's because it's in an nft rave and the whole point of it is to just make no fucking sense bro do drugs and see things with your eyes closed sounds like an episode of metal oculus like a plot point (laughs) where like concert goers get blinded by the lasers but it's actually the band was a cahoots with like local eye surgeons so they're they could see their profits increase maybe they did that in hong kong maybe like board yeah you know they you know they probably need money because nfts aren't selling maybe they're in cahoots with a local uh optometrist or ophthalmologist to treat these fucking dumbasses that flew all the way out there and <laughs> engulfed them in the process uh, if only they were that smart, Jeremy. I, I think you are giving them way too much credit. They are just—they are just extremely stupid. Does that mean I'm the evil genius? That's right. I saw a bunch of tweets um, aggregated from people who were at the rave and being like, "I woke up at like three o'clock in the morning and I—I I couldn't see, and it felt like there was lava in my eyes." Is anybody else feeling this way? I oh had to go god. to the ER. You know? Oh my god! <laughs> like, you Jesus. know what the worst part is? They probably didn't even do any drugs. You're gonna wake probably up the not. next morning, so the, you know, you know, you fucked up. You know, if you had done some, if you had speedballed or some shit, maybe, maybe you did a candy flip, you wake up the next day, your eyes hurt. You don't have that immediate dread and panic in, uh, immediately, but instead they, they woke up like that sober. I know yeah. for a fact. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy. What, uh, yeah, so another, you know, another, another notch in my argument that there should be no lights at the rave. And if they are sparingly, don't fuck like the pictures I saw installations that look like you someone was going to do surgery underneath of them you know insane genuinely insane <laughs> well it's because the whole point is like it's social capital right the whole point is to be yeah. to be seen be seen right? it's to yeah. be there and be seen as being mm-hmm. part of the the the, the board apes uh community you can it's use so our s- nft to verify your attendance to our rave you know like yeah, precisely that's sort of 
It's so stupid. But like, you know, but to the whole point around like, you know, like our NFTs dying. I mean, no, they, they have this undeath, like a lot of speculative access do. Right. And like, because it's also a point that you were making Ed, and that Marion made, um, in, you know, in her talk that like, you know, speculative assets, right. Like they're not these natural boom bust cycles, right. Like all assets, um, are, you know, it, it, it's, it's ultimately financial and legal decisions, right? Because like you bring up FTX, like could FTX have gone a different way? And it absolutely could have gone a different way. Like it was this, this kind of, you know, this, this storm of conditions. It wasn't like a perfect storm, but you know, it was a storm of conditions that led to the fall of FTX. But like if, if, if Trump had won Maybe FTX goes a different way, and they don't get investigated legally. You know, by if by the face the, of the company wasn't like a neurotic motherfucker yeah. who needed to stim every ten minutes. You know, yeah. I mean, to that point as well. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty on all charges, and it was like yeah. a record-setting uh, jur- jury deliberation. Area code. <laughs> they gave like him an area shit, code. Ha- like that. That uh, that trial was so short, and the jury deliberation was so short, which is extremely unusual because usually these like com- like these financial um case like fraud cases go on for months months even years because they're ex- they're complex they're arcane and you have to like get a bunch of you know you have to get like 12 randos off the street to like yeah. understand and and yeah. like these these complex financial instruments um and so a lot of it is like forcing 12 randos to go through an MBA course um, yeah. before they can yeah. like, pass judgment, right? So it's like really it takes a long time. Not with FTX. That shit was yeah, record-setting when, 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 <laughs> when do you think the defense realized they fucked up? You know, because I'm sure they went into this thinking, our strategy... Maybe we're not going to get him innocent on all charges, but we'll get him innocent on some, maybe, unless they were bilking him for money and hours and billables. Oh, that um, would be the only way know. to do it, is to just yeah. like pray that it goes on long enough that you can bilk more money out of them. Like, you know you're oh, yeah. winning. If I was a defense law firm, are you kidding me? The way I would have fought for this case. This is, e- this is a easy money. There's, because especially when he spoke. I, I, I mean, not only when he spoke, when other people testified against him, it was also pretty fucking damning. But when he spoke and he just spent all the time, like all the things that we kind of detest about other public figures, um, smugness, avoiding questions, um, weird roundabout answers, pretending that they have to sift through their voluminous knowledge and encyclopedic reference points to figure out how to answer the proles or answer in a way the proles he was it sounds like he was doing <coughs> on the stand at once yeah, yeah so if i were the guilty. prosecution <laughs> my first my first thing i would have day one i would have been like i would like to call to the stand to testify Sam Bankman Freed. <laughs> Just fucking first day prosecution. Call SBF to the stand. Make him speak. Make him testify. That's that's uh you know he, he, he that that should be over so much quicker if you just let him uh, hang himself to dry. But anyways, anyways, I bring all this up, and now we're going on a bunch of tangents. Um, I did want to say as well that like you know uh, so so much of these um 
you know, asset bubbles and, and so much of this financial speculation, like there is nothing natural about it, right? Like, you know, it is about, you know, if you have enough money and power financial, financially and legally, you can push things through and even a even a big bust doesn't mean that you're you're down and out forever to this question marion brought up the fact that like you know we remember the cdo the collateralized debt obligation bubble remember that old thing and the the uh, extraordinary bust um of that bubble well you know marion was like that was not the end of cdos it was a really good point it's like you know just like in a, you know, just like uh, you know, the CDO market is actually on the rebound. I, I just looked it up just now. Um, uh, you know, Market Watch, Bloom, you know, uh, Bloomberg, and Market Watch are reporting that um, that the CDO bubble uh, or that the CDO market, you know, stood at roughly seventy billion dollars in twenty seventeen, um, compared to more than two hundred billion dollars pre-2008 crisis, but it's expected that market for CDOs is expected to reach $158 billion by 2026. So like, you know, I think it's a great point that like even something like CDOs um, that were the subject of perhaps one of the largest and most impactful speculative asset bubbles in the, uh, at least in living history, um, is like, well, they, they, they are, they are not down and out. They are rebounding. They're, they're coming back to like pre-crisis levels with the size of the market, right? Like the people don't learn because as long as there is money to be made, um, you can push, you can push things, you can make things happen, um, financially or legally, as long as there's enough money to be made by people. Right. And so it's like the question with NFTs is not like, will they go away because the asset bubble burst? Um, or will they go away because they're obviously stupid and pointless? It's more like, will they go away because people can't figure out a way to like make money out of them? And currently, like, as you said, Ed, like people are still really hustling hard to like find a way to make money out of them um, and, and use them for you know, use them on the blockchain, you know, but for, for, you know, for a lot of the, the, the conversation I see around it is, is like pro like property titles, right? Like using NFTs for like property titles. But anyways, I'm not dodging your very good and complex question about the insurance market. Um, to, to your point, I, I think it does work differently because while the insurance is hyper financialized in the sense that it's like, very much oriented around speculation. It's very much oriented around um, profit. It's very much oriented around investment. Um, there's something, you know, the, uh, the something that I think a lot of people don't maybe realize about the finances of the insurance industry is that the 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 premiums are only one one major like revenue or profit stream for insurers, right? So like, you know, insurers, you think like a lot of people think about insurance as kind of like a, a, a bank in a lot of ways, right? Where it's like you pay premiums, you know, you pay premiums. And then at some point in the future, you might need to make a claim. So in this way, it's like you're paying the insurer 
all of this pre all these premiums so that it gives you a right in the future to make a claim to make a deposit on the premiums that you have paid and perhaps on the premiums that other people have paid if your claim exceeds um, your your lifetime premiums right so a lot of people tend to think about insurance as this like deferred savings account um, right you know it's it's the in case shit happens as Jeremy just put in the chat right like um, but it's not insurance is not a deferred savings account um, and and insur- insurance companies hate that people think of it as a, as a, a deferred savings account. They hate that people think that you are buying the right to a claim with your premiums. No, insurers say what you are doing is you are buying the peace of mind that comes with knowing you have an insurance policy. That's the product that you are ba- you are buying with your premiums, right? Um, that may or may not mean that you have the ability to make claims in the future, um, but you but you have the peace of mind now. Um, but what that means as well is that like that that also that transaction is not the only like money flowing in and out of an insurance company. It's a lot. It's a major aspect of the insurance companies uh, of insurance companies financials is the like gross underwritten premiums as it's called. So the amount of policy like premiums um, that that are coming in um, as compared to their uh, the claims that they're paying out plus other overhead expenses, salaries, advertising, uh, marketing, um, you know, uh, offices, all of that kind of stuff, right? Like that's the operational uh, expense. Like that's the operational cost of a, of an insurance, and the, and insurers are largely like the health of an insurance company is is judged primarily through the loss ratio of the insurance company, right? Like this is a major. Uh, indicator of health for insurers is the loss ratio. And that's essentially just a ratio of like how much money is coming in versus how much money is going out. Right. And, and for like a healthy insurance company, a good loss ratio is going to be probably somewhere in the, the, the 85 to 95 percent, you know, percent, right. Which is to say that you are, um, for every dollar that you bring in, you're paying out, you know, let's say 90% of that for claims, but also for salaries, for marketing, for overhead, and so on, right? So that then leaves you with a, a, uh, um, a 0.9 or a 90 loss ratio, Right, which is to say, which is really good because it's under a hundred or it's under one. Um, so you've got a ten percent where that's profit, right? You're making ten percent profit um, operationally. Now, this is how like the finances of the industry tends to be talked about. We see this a lot in like the Financial Times reporting right now, which has been talking about for with like automotive and property insurers have been like reaching, you know, like 120, 125, 130 loss ratios, which means that operationally they are paying out like 20 to 30% more than they are taking in. 
So that's a massive loss. You're operating on a twenty percent on a twenty percent loss or a thirty percent loss, right? And like that's an indicator that like something's wrong, right? And this is also why um, car insurance premiums have been skyrocketing over the last um, couple years, right? In large part, that's because like the um, the the industry says that it's like the price of repairs have gone up a lot because of like the price of car parts have gone up like you know supply chain shortages like all of that stuff means that repairing cars has gone up which means that like insurance costs are going up and so they have to like pass that on to consumers in term in terms of like skyrocketing premiums and all that um but you know that reporting on the uh, on the loss ratio i think is somewhat deceptive, especially when people purely focus on the loss ratio on this idea that premiums in, claims and overhead out, that's all that insurers, insurers do in terms of their revenue. How can you be a company that's operating on a 20% loss while also still somehow making billions of dollars in profit? I don't understand. Like that doesn't make any sense. Something's not adding up here. Like literally something is not adding up here, right? It's because that loss ratio only looks at the operational uh, expenditures and profits uh, of, a, of a company, right? But being financial companies, insurance uh, insurers are not purely living and dying based on their operational cost and revenue. They instead make most of their money or lo- almost all of their profit comes from the float right the float is the fact that like you know insurance companies have at any point in time you know a la- a major insurance company like a geico or an allstate or something like that might at any point in time have let's say 50 billion dollars of float now that is money that they have in terms of premiums which they have not had to pay out because there's a time difference between taking premiums in and paying claims out, right? That difference might be, you know, if you're a Geico customer, you might go, and on average, most people go um, like 10 or 15 years between accidents, right? So you might be paying premiums for 15 years, before you ever need to make a claim. And your claim may never exceed the amount of premiums that you've been paying for those 15 years, right? What does Geico do with that 15 years of premiums it's been sitting on before it needs to pay out a claim? You think it just keeps it in a in a in a nice little banking account for you, you know, and doesn't doesn't touch it. Maybe it collects like a a one percent interest, like a nice you know high interest savings account. Hell no, that's called the float. They take that money and they go invest it in other things, right? They go buy real estate. They invest it in other bonds and stocks. You know, they invest it in other financial instruments. They go do speculation with the float, right? That's where they make a huge amount of their profit is from investment income. 
And I think this is really actually important to understand like what it means to have a financialized insurance industry. It's not just that it's like one premised on profit or even one premised on speculation, right? In the sense of like, you know, you know underwriting risk is an inherently speculative activity. Um, but it's more based on speculation in the sense that uh, under underwriting the the profits of the insurance industry is a lot of speculative investment on the float. Now, Warren Buffett, right, you know, founder, CEO, you know, founder of Berkshire Hathaway, you know, extremely rich man, also seen as, you know, a, a, a guru of these things. He's, 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 he wrote a really uh, good shareholder letter like in 2010 for Berkshire Berkshire Hathaway um, that explains the float and he's I loved it because it was really explicit where he said the magic the the magic of Berkshire Hathaway which owns a lot of insurance companies the magic of Berkshire Hathaway is thanks to the float we have I think at t- at that time he was saying they have 62 billion dollars in float we have $62 billion of interest-free money that we are able to invest in other profitable enterprises. Um, and that is, the, that is the magic of Berkshire Hathaway's uh, profitability quarter after quarter after quarter is that we have the ability to invest billions and billions and billions of dollars of free money Free money that our policyholders and customers let us hold on to for them. Um, that that is the magic of Berkshire Hathaway, and that's exactly the magic of insurance companies. This is why insurers are so big, why they're so profitable, even when they are crying about their loss ratios rising, even when they are crying about not being able to uh, cover homeowner more, you know, properties, um, in California or Florida or whatever, right? Like, I, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's a real, it's a real, like, it's a kind of under acknowledged aspect of the insurance industry when people just purely focus on them as if it is a premiums in claims out business rather than a hyper financialized uh form of an uh, of, uh, you know it's a hedge fund in a lot of ways right it's a hedge fund um that plays with a lot of interest free money um you know and, and so to your point around like you know are there these big like pro- like booms and busts in the insurance industry not as much in large part because the asset, like the product that they are selling tends to also be a really long-term product, right? Like they want cost, you know, it's life insurance. It's the, the life of the lifespan of a person, but even like things like property or automotive insurance, health insurance, like these are long-term products. Um, and so they're not as like, uh, they're, they're not as easily like, you know, brought into speculative bubbles in that way because the the assets just don't work that way but that's not to say that like there aren't changes and that the insurance industry is not like you know taking any opportunity or advantage they can to like push new products push changes in products um this was some of the interesting stuff i was definitely learning about at the insuretech connect um vegas conference as well as like how like changing market and social conditions have given insurers a lot of um, exciting new opportunities to push 
products um, like behavioral insurance, you know, vehicular telematics that track when, where, and how you drive, and you know, the usage-based insurance that so you're like paying per mile um, for rather than having a uh, in, rather than having just a static automotive policy, you have a dynamic one that is based on your your mileage and based on your driving um, behaviors and stuff like that. Like, you know, they, they're, they're, def they're pushing this stuff. The technology is there. Um, and, and that's like the new frontier for them in terms of like new insurance products. I can, well, I'll get into it more um, around like what some of that looks like and why it might be, you know, or why it, why it's increasing now in terms of like adoption and uptake or mandating the use of it. It's typically thought of as an nefarious force um, that we have to buy into, a kind of fact of life instead of an artifice. And I think that unveiling a lot of the financial elements of it and the political economy have been like really helpful in thinking about okay well why has it been advanced and like you know if you were going to integrate something like this into everyone's lives what are the mechanisms going to do it by which and what are some of the logics that are going to dominate it pretty quickly right i mean is that is you know not to make you answer again at length but one thing i do want to know is like you know is that part of what drew you to insurance as a mo as a kind of field of analysis, like the the centrality it has in life and like the ability it has to to govern people's private decisions. Um, is it the technological applications that have manifested here? Is it the ways in which you know capitalist logic gets perverted or something else? Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all those things, but primarily for me, it's like what draws me to study anything. I think is the same. It's the same with you guys, right? It's that it's like what's like you you go look for uh, like the most important, but maybe overlooked or under or misunderstood like material operations of power in society, right? Like same with technology. Like when we talk about technology, we talk about it in terms, we're really talking about like material power, right? Like I'm not interested in fucking gadgets for the sake of gadgets. You know, I, I ain't a fucking, uh, uh, gadget reviewer. Uh, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm a fucking, I'm a, I, I, I'm a social, uh, you know, I'm doing social analysis of power, right? Power and value. I mean, for me, that's what political economy is. It, um, it, it's about studying the relationship between power and value, um, you know, and, and what and what that looks like, and how that operates in like you know specific, um, you know, instances like specific, uh, you know, historical or social instances. And so, you know, what drew me in and what keeps drawing me deeper into insurance is seeing how it is this fucking you know this app this massive powerful pervasive you know, and, and like kind of shadowy regime of uh, of governance of social governance and uh in society like that does that does the power value relationship mediated through this thing called risk you know um, and, and that, that's, that's what's like draws me deeper into it. And of course it was like reading about these, uh, reading about like coming across like insure tech, you know, the, the coming across ways in which insurance companies were using new technologies. That's all, you know, that's what kind of like drew me to it as, you know, in the first instance, 
but then once I started paying more attention to it, it's just get sucked deeper and deeper into it. Because I think with all of the kind of like good political economy, right? Like the, the technology is in a lot of ways, like the, the, the symptom, not the cause. Right. And so like, you know, I go off, you know, I just went off talking about like the, the, the financials of the insurance industry and like this mechanism of the float, none of that is like technological in any sense, but it is like absolutely crucial to understanding the political economy um, and the fundamentals of the, uh, of the insurance industry. So it is like that getting drawn deeper and deeper in, but for me, yeah, it's, it's like, it's go looking for, go look for where power and value meet um and there you will find like very important and consequential material uh operations uh and 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 like like material forms of governance um in our in our lives right and like i mean the thing that with insurance as well is just is just this thing like i said in my talk at the top of the episode it's like so ignored so like so largely ignored so largely invisible um it's it's got the shield of boringness and the sword of bafflement right you're like this thing is boring and it's baffling why would i spend any more of my life than i have to thinking about it um it's it's this necessary evil i mean i i was just like uh in my business insider piece that came out looking at like forms of you know uh, profit optimization through pricing and claims um, in, in insurance. Like at the start of that essay, I, I, I quote from this like consulting, um, this consultancy that did a big survey of like the of like public perception and trust of the insurance comp of the insurance industry. Like surprise, surprise, it's it, it ain't good. The public has a very poor perception and very low trust in the industry. And even this like cons this this consultancy, which is it works for banks and insurance, right? Uh, you know, providing them with like market insights and survey data and stuff like that. Like even they frame it in this uh, report as, you know, most people see insurance as a quote unquote necessary evil, right? You don't, man, talk about the accusation of cynicism if you are working in an industry or running interference for an industry that the vast majority of people see as a necessary evil that they are unable to disentangle themselves from, but also need to depend upon for their lives and hate every single moment of that dependency and interaction, you got to be pretty fucking cynical to not to right. think that like all of them are wrong right like right. no you, no you, it was it's that simpsons meme right like actually i'm right it's the kids who are wrong you know that's <laughs> cynicism right there no but we're the real cynics we are the real cynics yeah but, but, it's, because we're and not. it's just because you don't understand how insurance works you keep thinking about it like a deferred savings account and you get real mad when I uh, when 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 I don't when 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 I don't pay out when you think that you owe you deserve to pay out you see the the problem is is that you don't understand the float Ed you know it's like <laughs> like I can imagine uh you know some like you know m like middle manager insurance executive at uh being you know sitting down and being like 
Now you see, now you now you see here. If you understood how insurance industry actually worked, uh, you you you'd recognize that it was you who was wrong to have such low perception and low trust in us. You know. Now let me let me tell you here about this thing called the float. We take your money and we use it interest free for other things. That's that's good business. <laughs> it's the best business you might you say. Might say. So the InsureTech Connect conference was really good. It was a, I mean, it was action packed. It was super intensive. I got to talk to so many people and learn about so many new products. <laughs> it was really good in that way. That was like true, like really terrifying. I was like, oh fuck, <laughs> I'm learning. Uh, uh, I'm learning evil knowledge here, forbidden knowledge. Um, about things that have been happening and are happening in the uh, in, in in insurance, but I want to. It might be. I, I think it might be worth. Might be good to to give you guys a little a little short report on a few big things that stick out in my mind. Um, you know, great great way to to leave off the uh, dear listeners of the show as well with some with some of this terrifying knowledge um, about what. What, what's happening and what's on the horizon for InsureTech? I talked to this company. I mean, one of the things I keep thinking about, and I'm going to do a lot more to follow up on, I talked to this company. I, I knew about them before, um, but I got to learn a lot more about what they're doing. Um, I didn't like it. <laughs> uh, it's this company called Arity. And Arity calls themselves a behavioral and mobility data and analytics company, right? So they, Jesus they, Christ. <laughs> they specialize in mobility data uh, and behavioral analytics. Uh, you know, how, how do people move, um, you know, and, 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 tra- you know, and how, how do people engage with transport? How do they drive? How, do, how and where do they move and things like that, right? And of course, it's like, you know, yeah, you can see how you know they 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 are a seller of data and analytics to other companies, um, as well as you know governments uh, who might want this uh, this kind of information. I I did learn that Arity has one of the largest telematics data sets uh, in the world. Um, they have they have telematics data, so telematics. Uh, vehicular telematics is that you know the tracking of when, where, and how people drive. You know, so really, it's like it's a Fitbit for your car. You know that that's kind of what telematics is. And Arity has one of the largest telematics data sets in the world. How 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 do they have telematics data for? If I remember correctly, I have to go look at my notes. But if I remember correctly, they said. Um, they have telematics data for 40 million people in the U.S. 40 million people in the U.S. alone. Um, they don't just operate in the U.S., although they primarily do. Um, they, they have data from outside the U.S., but primarily they operate in the U.S. But 40 million people. How do they have that much telematics data tracking when, where, and how people drive? 
uh, it's because unlike a lot of telematics insurance products, which are very much on the up and up right now, you know, that would be, you know, for you see these all over the place. If you've tried to get ins- automotive insurance recently, you've probably been um, sold or told that you need a telematics device, right? And hey, you might get some some premium discounts for using a telematics device or increasingly telematics apps that use the GPS and the accelerometer in your smartphone rather than using like um, a, a separate dongle that plugs into your car. Now, a lot of times, like uh, so, like a Progressive, uh, an Allstate, a State Farm, like you know, any any company that's offering an automotive. Uh, telematics product and also a lot of smaller startups and stuff like that that are doing it this is really big for insure tech where companies claim that they you know they they have the most cutting-edge software that can and ai and machine learning that can you know more dynamically use that telematics data and personalize it and you know use it for uh, nudges and and scoring and stuff to make people drive better or just price them more accurately for their driving for the most part when a company a company only is able to collect data from its customers right and so you know if you have a telematics product you're only collecting that telematics data from your customers for a large insurance company that might only be, you know, a couple million people, right? Because telematics products are also not yet the the dominant uh, automotive insurance product on the market. Although it's drastically increasing, I asked people at the conference why it was increasing, and they um, multiple pe- companies independently told me that it was COVID it, that was uh, allowing that was an opportunity. Um, COVID was an opportunity for the insurance companies to um, push and market and mandate these telematics devices because they're um, they're sold as a way to cut the cost on premiums. You know, COVID people either weren't you know people weren't driving as much during COVID, so they didn't want to be charged for an automotive premium uh, policy that they weren't using. So they are you know incentivized to switch to a usage based one, but that also requires the collection and sharing of all this data. Um, or people have less money after COVID, and so they are also looking for ways to cut costs. One way to cut costs is get a telematics product because you're also required to share uh, all of this data, right? And so uh, so it was interesting there that the actual thing that has caused the most movement in terms of adoption of telematics uh, uh, products is not something technological. It's not something that the insurance industry has done. Um, it was just changing social and market conditions caused by COVID. Yet another uh, industry that found a way to benefit from the pandemic. Anyways, go on to Arity. So unlike um, these other companies that can only collect data from uh, from their, their, their customers, Arity collects telematics data through its partnership with dozens of apps, apps that use GPS and are collecting and sharing and selling that data to Arity without you knowing, but with your consent because you clicked agree on the terms of conditions. Um, and so these are apps like 
gas buddy, you know, so you're like, you know, an app for finding cheap fuel nearby. These are apps like Life360, you know, which is a, 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 a family safety app. You know, these are apps like Weatherbug, right? Uh, like all of these apps or have partnerships with Arity where they are collecting GPS and accelerometer data um, from your phone while you're driving and then selling that data to Arity, which then amasses it in one single massive telematics data set, which it then runs a bunch of an uh, analysis on. It, it, uh, it sells uh, analytics products based on that data to um, anybody who wants it, right? Uh, an interesting wrinkle here is that Arity was also founded and is wholly owned by the Allstate Corporation, right? Um, but importantly, as they explained to me, the all they are owned. They were founded and owned by the Allstate Corporation, which is the holding company for all of uh, the companies owned by Allstate. So this means that it is separate from Allstate Insurance. Because if it wasn't, that would run afoul of some uh, regulation. <laughs> if if uh, this company was a like had had no firewall um, between Allstate, the insurer, and Arity, the telematics uh, analytic company, but this also means that Arity sells this data and its and its products to all of Allstate's competitors as well. So Allstate is. Uh, Allstate is Allstate. The holding company is winning in the market uh, by selling products to all of Allstate, the insurance company's competitors. <laughs> and so it's it's very very interesting and classic, um, you know, mark like horizontal integration um, of of markets here, right? But um, uh, what I also learned though is that. You know, all uh, Arity has also given a driving score to like all 40 million of the drivers that it has telematics data about. That's that includes all of you, not me, but that includes both of you and many people listening um, that have have these hidden Arity driving scores. It's something that you, as a as a as a consumer, uh, you don't know about. You have no access to it. You have no ability to know what your score is. No ability to try to change or challenge it in any kind of way. But it is also actively being used to make decisions about you, right? So, Arity will sell these driving scores to. Uh, insurance companies to do a few things with. One is you can use it for marketing, right? Because the driving score is going to place you in a like 10% uh, rating, right? Um, so, you know, are you in the top 10% of drivers in terms of like your risk and safety? Um, or are you in the bottom 10% or are you in some 10% in between that? Insurance companies can use this score to ensure that they are only marketing their uh, to the top ten percent, which does what, what's called cream skimming. Um, this is a major way of market differentiation and, and segmentation by insurers. Is you market your products to people who are the the best risk, 
which means that they are the highest profit because they are less likely to, you know, make a claim, right? And then you don't market your products to people who are lower, right? Because those are bad risks. You want to keep those people off your books, you know, that, and then that's called signposting, right? This, and then this is what happens as well. It's not only marketing, but it's also say you're going to uh, a, an insurance company to get a, a, a policy quote for a, a vehicle policy. That company might have your Arity driving score already loaded up. And so when you're going to make that to get a policy quote, it's factoring that driving score into how it uh, interacts with you, right? Whether it offers you a, a, a quote or not, what price that quote is at, right? Are they going to offer you something favorable because you're a good driver and they want to get you on their books? Or are they going to offer you a, a signposting rate, right? Which is a rate that's so high that it's essentially saying, uh, go kick the can down the road uh, and go to somebody, you know, go, go, go find some, go find a policy somewhere else. Right. Um, or as some companies will do, um, uh, like uh, the, the, the company high road, right. Which I believe, hold on. I need to look this up real quick, Jeremy. Yes, stay from. Okay, so what some companies will do, and I, I've heard of, I've heard this from some interviews I've done as well. Um, there's like, you know, so Allstate owns Arity. State Farm <laughs> owns this startup called High Road, um, which is a like subprime uh, auto insurer, and it, it's subprime because it mandates the use of all of this data tracking. It creates something like three different driving scores that are updated in real time. It gives personalized interventions and nudges to get people to drive more mindfully, as they put it, right? So it's like a highly invasive and interactive uh, and and uh, form of, of uh, surveillance insurance, right? Um, that is marketed towards like subprime drivers who can't get uh, a normal automotive policy from, you know, State Farm, for example, right? So what's so what State? Let let's go through the 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 quote phase here. So you might be going to State Farm to get uh, an auto insurance policy, and so you get you ask you get a quote online. State Farm might have uh, this driver score from Arity a wholly owned company of the Allstate Corporation. And that 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 Arity driving score says that you are in the bottom 20 or 30 percentile of drivers. You're a bad risk. And we don't we we and we don't want bad risk on our books because they're not profitable. In fact, sometimes they cost us money. So what what I can do rather than reject and not offer you a policy uh, or not offer you, yeah, not offer you a quote for a policy at all. I can offer you a a rate that's so high that there's no way you would take it. But at the same time, I can signpost you and say, but you could get a more favorable rate if you signed up with High Road, a wholly owned subsidiary of the State Farm Corporation, right? And then they say, okay, great. You know, you go uh, sign up for 
for high road, you know, you're going to get a subprime auto insurance product. It's going to be a high, you know, a hyper surveilled product. You're trading a lot uh, of, of, you know, you're trading a lot uh, in, re- in return for um, this insurance product, right? It's, it's, it's just interesting to see, I think, how this market is working, right? And all of the kind of like back in machinations that are happening where before you even go and get a quote some some company has already collected thousands and thousands of data points about your driving use that to create a score that score is then sold to a different insurance company that insurance company uses that score in its whole decision making processing around just around the quote phase they've also created a a subsidiary company that is explicitly geared around subprime drivers that uses all of this behavioral uh, surveillance tracking and hyper personalization and scoring right like there there's so much going on in the back end that most people just have no idea about when you think that you're going to get an automotive insurance policy and it's just a simple like all right well what's your you know what's your age what's your gender what's your zip code right and then you get your your policy there's so much more going on there and so many more partnerships as well right like you know it's because you have a you have the weather bug app and so that might a few a few connections a few nodes down the network because you have that weather bug app it might mean that you get signposted down to a subprime auto insurance po- uh, policy right like it's it's so wacky to think to like follow the data and see all of the ways in which that where that data is coming from and all of the hands it's touched and all of the decisions it's influenced in this like butterfly effect kind of way um that you know because you downloaded the weather bug app at you know at some point maybe five years later you are now uh that that has directly contributed to you um getting a subprime auto insurance policy that scores you on three metrics is constantly monitoring your behavior and is using ai to nudge you and uh and and hassle you it would be fun to visualize as a sort of interactive journey. Thank you for the nightmare fuel. <laughs> <laughs> That's just one. Now is a perfect time to say, I started a palate cleanser channel on our Discord. So you can go look at like <laughs> animal pictures after listening to that. I know. I feel like I need to, instead of, you know, instead of like, putting a dollar in the swear jar i need to like upload a few of a few cat pics um of my cats to the palette cleanser channel as, as a way of like you know uh, like tithing <laughs> for 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 telling y'all about this and that was only one company i talked to um at this conference right only one one of these things they're there are so many other things happening. Like that's on the front end of the value of the insurance value chain. The like the you know the the getting a quote and finding a policy. There are also so many things like this happening on the back end around claims as well. Um, I won't go into it. I will just mention the uh, uh, <laughs> one of the companies and one of the products that I I saw. 
is called is from this data analytics firm called um, Carpe Data, which I don't know. I I, I hate Beautiful these name. cutesy names. <laughs> I hate these cutesy names. Um, but they were marketing their new or they they yeah they were marketing their new product at, at their big pavilion. You know, this is like a highly financed um, startup uh, in the insure tech market. But it's uh, the company's called Carpe Data. And now they have a uh, product called Claims X Ultra. The next evolution in insurance fraud detection has arrived. I want to read some of the market, like the copy from, from Claims X Ultra. In a digital world where fraudsters continuously adapt, Claims X Ultra is the essential tool for comprehensive insurance claims processing, offering evidence-based alerts, enriched customer data from first notice of loss to settlement and vendor risk analysis. Claims X Ultra detects fraud earlier, enhances customer experience, and streamlines operations, making your goals to do more with less actually achievable. Half of the top 10 U.S. insurers already see an average 10x many million dollar ROI with Claims X. Imagine what is possible with Claims X Ultra. So what ClaimsX Ultra does is it is a web scraping uh, tool that then so if you make like a like an like a uh, say you make um ad say you make like a workers comp claim right you get you get hurt on the job you you've broken your ankle you know you fell off a ladder you broke your ankle you make a workers comp claim. Well, what Claims X Ultra will do is scrape and then regularly scrape the, the web for any and all information it can find about you, Ed. This includes your social media posting, um, Yelp reviews or Google reviews that you might have posted, uh, things that other people have posted about you or tagged you in, like any information it can find and validate about you on the web, it's scraping that information. Why is it doing that? It's doing it to see, are you posting a Yelp review at a gym? Well, why are you going to the gym? You've got a broken ankle. Starts sounding like some fraud. Are you... Have have people taken a photo of you out golfing with your buddies? Why are you out golfing? Don't you have a broken ankle? That sounds like fraud, right? So it's this. It, it creates this dossier of web scraped information about you um, that is then given to the insurer uh, managing your workers' comp claim as a way of creating evidence a paper trail of evidence to reject your claim and perhaps even come after you for fraud, right? That's Claims X Ultra. Um, I'll uh, read a bit more from the copy here. Evidence-based alerts for all claims types, from auto and collision and workers' comp to general liability and more. Claims X Ultra streamlines processing, reduces delays, and collects evidence to prevent fraud before online information is scrubbed. So don't think about trying to untag yourself from your friend's post, because Claims X Ultra is going to get there before you can untag yourself. 
historically available for bodily injury claims, Ultra expands these capabilities to include APD, workers' comp, GL claims, and more. So essentially what this is doing is it's an automated cyber Pinkerton um, that is always uh, keeping tabs on you, always uh, forming a dossier of information about you to then feed to the insurer, give them any and all evidence that they can um, to reject your claim and perhaps even sue you for fraud. That That's Claims X Ultra. Yeah, nightmare. <laughs> nightmare fuel. Thank you for that. Yet another one of these like back end you know, you know, systems that people have people have no idea are operating, right? But like there it is, right? Like another one of these things that's in the back end. How to how to ruin your company's Thanksgiving and Christmas and holiday parties by Jason Sadowski, PhD. <laughs> The all fraud detection shit is like a real racket because it's also like um, extraordinarily uh, unregulated. A lot of insurance regulation focuses on underwriting, you know, like what data can be used when, you know, for underwriting, you know, for pricing risk uh, and policies. So a lot of that, a lot of the regulation, a lot of the rules are about like, you know, not using protected class data, only using certain types of, of models to underwrite, um, ensuring that there are, you know, there's there's validation and verification about the use of data um, and what types of data and so on and so forth. What is highly unregulated uh, compared to underwriting is stuff around marketing and fraud. Right. So like the kind of arity driving score, like that's a marketing product. Right. Uh, the claims X ultra, that's a fraud detection product. Right. And so even though they are doing things that are extraordinarily invasive uh, and also extraordinarily like pseudoscientific in a lot of regards, um, like I talked about in my talk, you know, the digital polygraph kind of bullshit. Uh, they are also like really uh, unregulated. That 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 is like we talk about like the the wild west. Well, in you know, well, insurance is this august uh, industry. You know, it's as old. It, you know, it, insurance is as old as capitalism. Like in terms of the insurance industry, the modern insurance industry is as old as capitalism. Um, you know, uh, but like. A lot of these products that are out now, like it, it really does feel like the Wild West. Um, and and it, it is that like bringing that Wild West of tech to the uh, to the insurance industry. It's 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 it, you know, it's like it's like Reese's, you know, you got your peanut butter and my chocolate and it's it's great taste that tastes great together. This is why we don't do insure tech episodes very often. You know, we got we kind of like we do it all at once, you know, you just. Just, just, just get it all out at once, and then we won't, we won't revisit it for for a while, um, because I continually just learn shit. That you know, when I gave my, when I gave this the the talk at the conference, um, the first question from the audience, the the person prefaced it by saying, "Well, uh, I want to thank you for all of that absolutely terrifying information, and now I have a question for you, right?" And it's like, I that that is that's the vibe. It is absolutely terrifying, but I wish it were made up. You know, like again, it's like 
what we were talking about with the cynicism accusation. Like, I wish I were just making this stuff up. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm just like going to the industries, you know, go, going to where the industry is and being like, what are y'all doing? And they're like, here's all the things that we're doing. And then I come and tell people about it. And they're like, what, what the fuck? Surely you must be making that up. Um, and, and, and I'm, uh, unfortunately I'm not. Right. Unfortunately, you're just sharing the nightmare fuel. Yeah, that's, that's right. But all right. Well, <laughs> I think that's a good place to, to wrap it up. We've gone long. I, I had a feeling we would go long. Um, but thank you everybody for listening. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional episodes every single week we we just recently unlocked a uh, a classic from behind the paywall um but there's there's so many more bangers uh on patreon so you don't have to wait six months and hope that maybe we unlock the episode you wish you could listen to you can go listen to it for just five dollars a month um so find us there and until next time later adios